0: Welcome to the next episode of American Filmmaker. On this episode, we are going to talk to Brian Newman. Brian Newman is a distribution strategist, a producer, and filmmaker, and I have a feeling that Brian is a fan of all stories and films that help illuminate the human condition so that we can make this world a better place. Please welcome Brian Newman.
1: Hey, thanks for having me
0: thanks for being here I really really appreciate your time because I know it's busy so I guess the first question that we normally ask everybody is tell me what it was like growing up and when you realized that you wanted to go into filmmaking and and help be part of this creative village that brings stories to audiences
1: sure that's a great question actually Uh, when I think back about it I was always um, a film buff and from childhood Growing up, you know, watching movies was was always in love with them, uh, but didn't have the kind of childhood where I was around anyone in the film business or knew much about that being a possibility of a career by any by any means. And I didn't grow up in a family with a camera or you know being able to experiment with that. And actually, most of my life while I was a, a film buff, I was very much into sciences and growing up I really wanted to be a neurologist actually. That was like my dream. And so I went to University of Florida thinking I was gonna go into pre med and was starting pre-med and then there was a film studies class and I took one and really enjoyed it and was doing well in it and started realizing there was multiple aspects to the film business beyond just being a director or a film fan uh, and started thinking about the film business more broadly and was not doing well in the sciences actually and decided to switch into the film arena. And the University of Florida Film School was more about theory and history. We had to go over to the um, journalism department to use film cameras or even digital cameras, the beginnings of digital cameras at that time because I was in university and... The late in the mid 90s. After undergraduate, I went to graduate school at Emory University, which was also more of a film studies, film theory, film history background, not production. But while I was there, I started uh, working with other students and produced a couple student film shorts and one feature film that a friend of mine did, and produced actually some early web video before. YouTube even existed. We were do, we were doing some web video around the '96 Olympics in um, Atlanta, and there were some of the first like daily postings of web video. And at the same time, started working at the Atlanta Film Fest as an intern, and I started to realize that while I really liked making films as a producer, I was definitely more interested in the business side of the equation. I really feel like as a director, most of the directors I know who I think are successful, they're obsessed with making their films. And if you gave them a a penny, they would put it into their movie. Or if you gave them a million dollars, they would put it into their movie. But that's what their obsession is. And my obsession was definitely more around thinking about how to get films to audiences than it was around the actual making of the film. So I started moving more into that direction while working more on film festivals and film organizations that, that exhibit films, I also started to miss some of the creative side. So I did continue to produce as well. And about, so I'd say once a year, I'll usually, sometimes twice a year, I'll produce either a narrative independent film or a documentary. And I enjoy that process. And I enjoy seeing a film from idea stage to taking it out to, to the customer and the audiences, but I definitely have decided I'm not a director. And so that's not the, the path I'm pursuing, but I like the creativity that goes behind the producing.
0: So from the film festivals and then working and seeing that and then feeling still inspired to make films and then produce uh, kind of from, you know, uh, the above the line perspective, and really what I like to call the kind of creative circle Because that creative circle is really a great place to be in the film process. So what was the first project, film, or branded content piece where you were able to start to fuse some of the stuff that you were uh, picking up?
1: Probably the first one was a small film that shot in Atlanta right as I was leaving the Atlanta Film Festival. I decided to produce a filmmaker's film who I had met through the film festival. Her name was Lisa France, and she had done a couple short films and one feature film. But she talked to me about making a film in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta, just about an hour south. And it was a film called The Unseen. It was a small, I think, uh, I'm guessing, just under $300,000 feature. So, very, you know, very low not micro budget but very low budget and i worked with her from the script stage all the way through completion of the film was a producer on the actual production of the film and then also helping with the trying to sell the film get it into film festivals etc and that was one of the first film projects that i was really heavily involved in the creative process all the way through but i learned a lot we made a lot of mistakes the film did end up getting small distribution, not, not nothing major. We didn't get a um, theatrical, we got a digital deal and uh, a small broadcast out of it. Played a lot of festivals, but that was the first project. And then from there on, um, I was still working more in the film festival and film organization world. So a lot of my work was about empowering filmmakers I worked giving grants to filmmakers and running film festivals and still felt like I was always in touch with filmmakers and understanding what they were going through and and whatnot. But that was the first big project that I worked on. And I've done a few since then, but that was where it kind of started.
0: Were there any lessons that came from that that kind of springboarded into you know, the next five years or like over the work or the strategy? Well, so
1: what I would say that I learned right away were both good and bad things. And on the good side, you know, all the things that you learn on a film set about working with people you like and trust and working um, in hard conditions and seeing what goes into making a low budget film and learned a lot about that. And, you know, was very instrumental in setting up all the relationships we had to get equipment and to do post in a way that was affordable on a small film. And those were lessons that I've taken into future projects. On the uh, more challenging side, I definitely learned through that project that you shouldn't start filming until your script is exactly where you want it. And I think, you know, we kind of thought, okay, the script is, is great and it's in a good space, but we felt like we would fix a lot of things during the production and during post. And I just learned that it really comes back to the script. If you're on a narrative project, being in the perfect place and that you just can't spend enough time making it strong enough. And another lesson I learned was I was uh, on that particular project more of a junior producer to a couple other producers. It helped a lot with every aspect of the film, but the there were two producers that brought in more of the financing. And usually when when that happens, the people who bring in the financing kind of own more of the control of the film and had a lot more say in the creative decisions because they brought in the money. And I definitely learned that I didn't want to be in that position again where I didn't have enough control over important creative decisions And so from that point on, I decided I would only work on projects where I was able to help bring financing, not from my own pocket, but from people I know or grants or entities that I know so that I could have um, a higher stature on the project and also make sure that I had more creative control. Not becoming the director, obviously, and the director is the one with the, the most creative control in the final cut, but being able to have a voice in that process and make sure that it's going where I want it to go. Because when you work on a film, as you know, working on films, they're your baby. And if you're going to spend, you know, at least a year and sometimes three or four years or more on that film, you want to make sure you want to be heavily involved in every aspect and believe in it. Yeah. So that was something that I've taken to all future projects.
0: I definitely hear you about having a creative partnership with all of the with collaborators. All. I think it's just helps so much and then sometimes it's okay to say i don't know as the writer or director but if the team of creatives around you is invested then you know the group's uh knowledge sometimes gets you know most of the time is is what wins and helps you make your day on set and yeah. then you know hopefully get distribution um cuz you know as a writer director i've definitely been in the position where people are invested for production, but then after that, you know, you come to distribution and then you realize that the strengths were, oh, you're a creative producer in production, but in distribution, you know, there's nothing. You know, whereas like not even instinct, you know, whereas like instinct, you know, helps, because it means I care and uh, I have an idea. And so having said that, like, I totally agree. You know, not because you want to, you know, be the director, but because it is a creative partnership and then having that ability to talk and listen is uh, something that helps build the community and that creative partnership and ownership. And I think it makes the film better in the end.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that when you're doing it, you want to be involved that way creatively. And that's what's carried through to my most recent film that I've worked on, which we can talk about in a second. But also, as you were mentioning about distribution, as a producer, you know, one of the skills I bring to it is in my um, day-to-day life, I'm still very heavily involved in the distribution business and work a lot with my clients as a consultant on distribution and marketing. And as a producer, when I produce a film, I stay more involved in the distribution and marketing than, than some of the other producers on the project. And I have an easier job if I've been involved in the creative side because I really believe in it and I know the the value of what we did and I understand um, early in the process, not just what we need to do to make the film work creatively but also to make it work for audiences and for marketing. And so even little things like knowing while we're shooting that we wanna not just capture the film but capture the other material we can use for marketing materials And making sure we're doing a good job of that all comes to the table so you know i think that's one thing i've been able to bring to what i do on the producing side is what i understand about the distribution business as well
0: so then going back to that first project what happened next and then when did it cross over into the branded content space because as a filmmaker Telling stories is is awesome, but when all of a sudden that story has a creative partner that has reach that the individual filmmaker doesn't have, then that story can actually resonate on a bigger level. And so some of those things as you cross over, I think are really interesting for filmmakers today, especially
1: after that film. I actually, you know, in the, in the middle of the distribution of the film, which, again, was a very modest distribution, we played a lot of film festivals, we got a small distribution deal for the film. Uh, it wasn't a situation where we could do a DIY distribution and try to broaden it ourselves uh, because the producers and financiers didn't want to put up more money for that. So, I, So some of those notions of DIY distribution, I did more later. But I actually got a job that precluded me from doing any producing for about five to eight years, which the quick version of it is I was running a place called Renew Media, which one of the things we did was give the Rockefeller Fellowships, which were grants to filmmakers. So every year, the organization I ran gave away a million dollars to filmmakers as grants. And we... I supported filmmakers and I spoke to filmmakers every day and helped support their creativity through the grants we were giving. But I was not able to do any producing during that time or any distribution or anything else. It was very much about running a nonprofit organization that was dedicated to helping filmmakers with uh, getting their films made through grants. And I merged that organization with the Tribeca Film Institute and became CEO of the Tribeca Film Institute here in New York and was running that for a little while. And again, I was, was not able to produce any projects, but I was helping filmmakers, not just through grants at that stage, but also through educational opportunities. We were teaching kids how to make films. We were doing things like Tribeca Hall Access, where we help filmmakers pitch to potential uh, producers and financiers and distributors. And I did that for a while and decided that I was kind of done with the nonprofit world had done enough of that and wanted to move into, uh, making films again. And I left Tribeca in 2008 and actually with another producer was trying to raise a film fund to make a slate of movies. And the short version of it is we, we failed miserably. Um, it was 2008. It was the height of the economic crisis. And it was an impossible time to raise money. And we couldn't raise the money we wanted. We were trying to raise $20 million to, to make a slate of low-budget films, all under a million dollars each. And it, I can go into that if, if it's interesting later, but essentially we weren't able no, to raise the no,
0: no, money. No, you should totally go into it because I think mm-hmm. what's really interesting about this story is at the same time, I'm I'm taking $150,000 and going to Peru to make my first feature film. And then we meet two years later at a Cayley in Edinburgh, which is a um, Scottish Highlands dance party uh, right. that Sean Connery kicks off. So, like, this is great. Keep going. This is great.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that party I remember very well. Before we get there, uh, before that happened, me and this other producer were trying to raise funds for this film slate, and actually, the the other producer's name was Ted Hope, and he's a very well-known independent film producer who's made over 70 movies that have all done very well. He's now head of the film division uh, for independent, or not independent, but for uh, artistic art house films at Amazon Studios. And so you can fail miserably and still go on to do good things. Uh, he moved on to doing other stuff and then doing that. Um, I was while trying to launch uh, that film company, I had to make a living, and so I started consulting. And because I had worked a lot through Tribeca in the distribution side of the business as well, and knew a lot of people on the distribution and marketing side, I started doing a lot of consulting around distribution and marketing. And I would work with independent filmmakers who needed help with distributing their films. And I also worked with distributors and was helping distributors with releasing films as well as acquiring films. So I worked for a while with TV, which is
0: um,
1: now part of AT&T and you know, all the conglomeration that's happened. But at the time was a satellite um, TV provider and they had a series called Something to Talk About, which was a series of documentaries that we would release in theaters and then on Direct TV, and then digitally on iTunes, et cetera. And so I did a lot of consulting around distribution and marketing, and that's probably when we met around 2010, I guess, in Edinburgh was when I was consulting more in the traditional film space around distribution and marketing, which I enjoyed and still kind of do. But at that same time, I got approached by a brand, Patagonia, who had made a movie, a documentary. And a friend of mine was the head of marketing at Patagonia. And she called me up one day and said, we've made a movie, but we don't know what the heck we're doing. Can you help us? And that began this weird journey I'm on now where I've been working with brands, helping them distribute their films. That particular film was called Damnation. It was a documentary about dam removal, which is a big issue in particularly in in the West and North, Northwest of the United States where states are starting to decommission and and blow up and remove dams and restore native uh, River runs and salmon runs
0: Great film great film by the way like wonderful It's like really, you know more more brands need to do this kind of work, you know
1: Yeah, so that was what was great about it was this this brand that cares about the environment and cares about changing the world if you're a Patagonia customer or fan or know much about them, they, they really believe in not just making clothes and selling them, but also they really want to make the world a better place. And, and I, after working with them, I really believe they, they do believe they want to do that. And this film was very much an activist film. I didn't make the film. They hired uh, two filmmakers who made a great movie on their own. They gave them complete creative control and final cut, which is very important when working with a brand. But then Patagonia put up the funding to do all of the distribution and marketing of the film. And with that film, with, with Damnation, the goal was to have an impact and to get people to care about the issue and really to, to sign at the time the Obama administration, to get the Obama administration to, to take action on decommissioning and getting rid of what we call deadbeat dams which are dams that are no longer producing energy. They're just sitting there blocking rivers. They're filled up with silt. This happens to every dam. I didn't know this when I started the project, but know a lot about dams now. And so there's these dams that are essentially just deadbeat dams that are the best thing to do is to blow them up and restore the natural river system. And I was hired by Patagonia to distribute the film. So we didn't even try to sell to a distributor. We did everything ourselves and released the film in theaters and film festivals. We premiered at South by Southwest. We opened at the IFC Center in New York, played in 10 theaters and another 20 cities uh, in actual Patagonia stores. And then we did 300 community screenings with a company called Film Sprout and built our own release of the film and then put it out on digital and Netflix and everything else and had a huge impact with the film. Um, and the reason we could do that was was because Patagonia knows how to market and they have customers and they have stores and they have millions of consumers that we could market to and we could have a much bigger impact with that little documentary than if we had sold it to a traditional distributor. So that was a big learning experience for me that is what's led me into what I'm doing now on the distribution side with other brands
0: that is a wonderful update from from 2010 yeah <laughs> um, so, so so you have access to all this data too I mean not to dork out I mean like but like part of some of the stuff I do is you know as I'm building out this hemp documentary it's called American hemp and the brand is Evo hemp that we're like working with and they're in Whole Foods National and they're bre- uh, breaking out their like Costco dis- distribution um. Right. But what I realized is uh, leaking short content through their platform uh, six months before, maybe even a year before the film's release to basically test how the different is whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, are kind of censoring the clips and then um, pushing those out, I guess. And so I realized the level of data collection. Can you talk about, you know, and I don't know if there's a way to talk about it because the data for so many projects that you've been seeing, but is there any unique way to talk about that? And then looking at, oh, you know, h- how are you going to approach a market, you know? Or, I mean, is there, you know, strategy or something? Does Like, does that make sense? Because as a filmmaker, often working from the creative, um, which can be more emotional and less number-driven, but, I mean, from that end of having all those analytics, is there anything you can talk about?
1: Yeah, sure. So, another uh, quick... Side note, I also one of my consulting projects I did at the same time as releasing Damnation was I was working with the Sundance Institute on a project called the Transparency Project, which was all about data. We were collecting data from thousands of independent films from the producers and the distributors directly and getting access to all those numbers that no one ever sees. You know, everyone knows box office. Uh, But no one knows what's actually being made on iTunes and Amazon and how many viewers are coming from these different platforms. And outside of getting viewership data from Netflix, which they never give away, we were able to get data on over a thousand films, which I was able to see and compile and build a whole system for analyzing that data. So I, I, I think about data a lot. And I was doing it at the same time as Damnation, which was interesting because in working with Patagonia, we were releasing the film ourselves and we had access to all of the data that is typically hidden from the film. And we also had access to the data from Patagonia and from their marketing. So we could run, you know, like you were mentioning briefly, we could leak clips in advance and do behind-the-scenes footage and do all those things but really see where they were getting responses and what data was coming back. And it was extremely helpful in thinking through how we would release the film and who we partnered with. And we learned very quickly, you know, that we needed to partner to get the word out because Patagonia, while it has millions of customers and we were getting tons of views there, we wanted to reach a broader audience. So we had to partner with different online publications to release clips of the film and, you know, essentially use, Partnerships, and you didn't have to have the data. You know, you can obviously think through and go, oh, an online publication that cares about fly fishing is going to care about rivers, is going to care about dams because it affects fish, which fishermen care about. So it would be good to market with them. But when we could see the data from those partners and actually see which ones of our clips were working best, we could then optimize what we were doing on the release of the film and have a bigger impact because we would say, oh, we thought this particular clip we're sharing would work best, but it actually wasn't performing as well as this other one. And we can switch it out and do a lot of what they call A-B testing. And when you're working with a brand, you can do this on a bigger scale than any filmmaker could ever hope to do. However, everything we did on the release of Damnation can be done on a smaller scale by an independent filmmaker, just by thinking smartly when you're releasing your film and, you know, When you today go online to Facebook and you put a post with a video on it, almost no one sees it unless you pay to promote your post now, the way Facebook works. So when you promote posts, you just, even with the little bit of money you have, even if you've only got $100 to spend, you can take part of that money and promote one video and part of it promote another video with different demographics and test which one's doing better and then start to use your money on the one that performs better. It's really simple looking at the data and seeing what works. So at Patagonia, we collected data like crazy and used that to optimize the release. We also used it though to not just think about making sales and having an impact with the, the release of the film, but we used it to determine whether or not what we were doing actually was working so we started collecting data, and we did this not with any super expensive firm. We just used Google Analytics, and we started running Google Analytics on different search terms like dam removal or salmon or beach replenishment, all the different terms you can think of that were affiliated with the movie about six months prior to the movie coming out. And we would run analytics and then see how those search terms changed over the life of the film and we could literally show through the google analytics that when the movie came out more people were paying attention to those issues through their searches online during the life of the movie so we could show that the movie was having an impact on what people were thinking about so that's a long way of saying that we did a lot of stuff around data we we also measured multiple other touch points, which I'm happy to go over, but essentially we tried to use everything we could to collect on the film, both to optimize what we would do next and then also to show the success that we had.
0: I think those other touch points are important because the Sundance Institute work with the Transparency Project was on the list of things to kind of get to. So maybe if there's a way to talk about those things and touch points and then like why and how the Transparency Project and maybe even some of the results...
1: Yeah, well, first I'd say on the touch points of things like you can measure, you can definitely, one thing that you should do as any independent film producer should be doing is when they're talking with their distributor or if they're DIY distributing their film, they should really be thinking about collecting all the data that they can on their film and negotiating to get as much data as they can. And most distributors, if you ask them, will give you a report that at least has the number of downloads and and rentals and sales of your film on the different platforms. And it's important to keep all that data, but also other data, like every time you show your film at a film festival, you should be asking the film festival, hey, you're showing our film and oftentimes they're not even paying a rental for the film. Can you at least give us the attendance figures so we know how many people came to our film? And if you can get that kind of data and, and keep track of it, it can help you not just show to your investors what what money you made back, but also how many people saw your film and how successful it was. But you can also use that data for your next movie, because you can say, this is what we were able to do on this film and how many people saw it in these kinds of places. And that's really important. Another thing you can do is measure, and, and I think this is the most important thing, is to measure what I – Well, not what I call what everyone calls earned media, which is the media that is written about your film. So it's not just that the New York Times did a review of your film or this blog wrote about your film or this podcast talked about it, but find out how many people download that podcast, how many people read that publication on average, how many views do they get, because that's also part of your impact. So if you can talk about how many people viewed not just your film, but also the information about your film and the conversation around your film, that's just as important as the money made back. So brands always measure that earned media value. And they put a dollar figure on it by figuring out what it would have cost them to get that same amount of mentions if they took out advertising. But as an independent filmmaker, you can just literally say – this is how many more people heard about our movie, and that's a big, important number. Um, On the Transparency Project, it's really an interesting story. What ended up happening was we collected a lot of data from filmmakers and brands, and and the biggest lesson we learned was that it's really hard to get the data, and not just because it's hidden, but even when it's not hidden, people aren't keeping track of it And so a lot of producers we went to their distributors actually had sent them reports, but the producers couldn't even find the report, (laughs) you know, they saved them in their email somewhere or they put them in a folder and they didn't go back and look at them. And it was very hard to gather that data. And when we would talk to distributors or even a film festival, they would have that data say on how many people came to the film, but they weren't keeping it in any kind of centralized database. So one thing we learned was what what needs to be built and what still has not been built is kind of a, a centralized database system that people could easily tie into that would help them track the data. And what's, what's interesting is the best way to do that today would be through blockchain technology. And it would be very easy using blockchain technology to make a system where people could share the data from every platform that shows a film, every festival that shows a film, they could share that data and set up permissions of who gets access to that data. But it's a, it's a, it would be an easy way. Well, not easy, but in the grand, in the grand scheme of things, easier than in the past to build a system where we can more easily share data with the parties that need to get it. But that hasn't been done yet. Sundance essentially discontinued the project because we were having a hard time finding funding to pay for the costs of the project. So it's something that needs to be picked back up. Someone needs to take the charge to lead that project, but we did publish the results. If you Google Transparency Project Sundance, you can still find a website that displayed some of the data we found. And essentially what we found was what you would expect but we were able to prove it with data, which was you really need to keep your costs low as an independent house filmmaker because the revenues coming back from traditional distribution or even DIY distribution of independent films is modest. So as you were mentioning, making that $150,000 film, that's hard to do. But when you make a lower budget film, you actually have a better chance of making your money back because even if you don't make a deal for your film for millions of dollars, but when you add up all the different revenue streams from a small theatrical, festival, rental fees, from iTunes, Amazon, etc., you can make back a modest profit if you're very careful on your budget.
0: That makes and sense. It's still,
1: still true. You know, there's always that lucky few every year the one percent that are the films that get picked up for millions of dollars at Sundance or Cannes or whatever, but for the rest of us and for the majority of films, um, it's a a really hard marketplace and it's really about piecing together an income from multiple different revenue streams. And if you've been very tight with your budget, even if you're making a a million-dollar film, that's easier to make back money on than a $5 million film. And it used to be that the goal for a lot of producers was to get into that space where they could make that film between five and $10 million. And nowadays that's almost impossible to make a profit back on. So oftentimes producers are now switching to where if you can't make a film for under $5 million, then you really need to think of that as a film that has to be commissioned by a platform. So maybe Netflix or, um, HBO or whoever pays for the production and you work in your profit and your fees into the budget, but you can't do it you know, quote unquote on spec and make a film and take it to the marketplace and try to make back a profit in that in that middle zone anymore.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And even if you do have, you know, three hundred thousand, you know, why make one three hundred thousand dollar film when you could, you know, maybe Make three, four, five, or six films if you you know just spent it right. So like that does make yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah, that's one option
1: to go to or or even if you've got three hundred thousand dollars, think about spending one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand on your film and maybe save a hundred thousand to put in towards the distribution and marketing. Because with a hundred thousand dollars, you could hire a service deal booker for your film and make deals with an aggregator or with a service like Quiver. And get your thumb onto digital platforms that you'd have enough marketing money to own your rights, own your distribution strategy, and make back your money. So there's multiple ways to go about it, but if you've saved some money for distribution and marketing, you have a lot more control of your destiny.
0: What year is this when the transparency project and all that stuff's happening?
1: Four or five years ago. I'm really bad with dates, but I'd say, you know, 2013 or 14 was when this was all the happening. And I kept on making more films with Patagonia, although, let me clarify, I wasn't the producer. I was helping Patagonia with funding the films, uh, the financing coming from Patagonia, helping them pick the films. And I was liaison with the filmmakers, but we always worked with independent producers and directors. And I decided I did not want to produce branded content myself. There's a lot of producers and production companies out there pitching brands and there's ad agencies. And what I realized early on was that that my niche for me as a individual was all those brands are making films but then they don't know how to distribute them. So i focus my business and what pays my bills and what pays my small staff of two people in a small office. Is working with brands on the distribution and marketing of their films. And Patagonia was the first one. I then got approached by multiple other brands. Yeti coolers was one, but also I did some work with Levi's. I did work with Keen, the footwear maker. I've done work with the New York Times. I've done work with Sonos. I've done work, which is a speaker company. I've done work with several other brands and. Currently, my brands that I'm working with are REI, which is the outdoor retailer, which is actually a co-op, so they're a, like a hybrid nonprofit, where they're they're not a for-profit business. They put back 70% of their profits into giving away their profits in profit sharing with their employees and their members, and also grants to nonprofits. I also work with Stripe, which is a which is a payment processing firm. They're kind of like PayPal. They, they're, they're on the back end running financial transactions for companies. One of my other clients is Shopify, which is also an e commerce platform. And I'm working with Unilever. One of their brands is called Sir Kensington. They make ketchup and condiments. And they've just done a documentary about French fries and the history of French fries. I'm helping them, their production company, distribute that film. So I've worked with a lot of brands and it's really been word of mouth from the brands and people hear, Oh, Patagonia or Yeti made these movies. And they look at them and they go, wow, this is a really cool initiative. And they find out that I helped them. And then they come to me to help them with their films in the future. So that's what I do to make my living. And then on the side, I, a few years ago started producing again and I've produced a climate change-related documentary called "Short Up. I am in the middle of finishing production on a f- film called The Ground Between Us, which is about public lands out west, and including in Colorado and in Utah and in Oregon and in Alaska. I'm looking at what the Trump administration is doing around public lands. And I just finished producing a narrative feature film that is – a tr- drama with a little bit of comedy. Uh, none of these are brand-supported projects. They're they're independent projects that I produce to kind of still have that hand in the creative process, but I do those separately from brands, and I do my branded entertainment work uh, more on the distribution and marketing side.
0: That seems like it would keep anyone busy.
1: <laughs> well, as you probably know, being a freelancer, any kind of consultant or freelancer, you only make a living by having a lot of different clients and doing a lot of things. So you try to make sure they don't overlap too much. So I try to time it so that I'm working with clients when I'm not working on a movie and vice versa. And sometimes you get lucky and can do that. And sometimes everything hits at the same time. Like this week, I'm working on the, the, the film I produced, the narrative film is called the outside story. The deadline was this morning or today for Toronto Film Festival and for the Venice Film Festival. And we were finishing our edit for the deadline at the same time. I have three different brand clients that have made films that they're submitting to these festivals. And I was helping them submit their films at the same time. So every now and then you're doing a bit of both.
0: Yeah, yeah, a little triage, so to speak. (laughs) Or like octage. (laughs) Exactly. But,
1: But I think it goes to a really fundamental point, which I think is my belief for all filmmakers and people in the film industry is that as a producer or filmmaker, you really need to diversify what you do. And that means diversify creatively the types of projects you're working on. But also diversify your income streams because you often can't make a living just on making your independent art house film that you love on its own so a lot of the smarter producers and filmmakers i know do a mix of things they might do their their labor of love project that they have no you know desire to have a brand be involved with at all it might be a documentary that a brand wouldn't support in a million years or a experimental film or an narrative film that you know is a creative endeavor with no brands whatsoever but then maybe they do advertising or brand content on the side and so that's what I've been able to do to diversify my income streams and the type of projects I work on is do a mix of both brandy content work and then also purely independent creative work
0: I think that's great advice and it's almost the best way to end the podcast um that's what i've been able to do to survive and diversifying as much as possible but also creating as much as possible and i think you're at a unique nexus point where those you know there's there's a very real need to pay the bills to keep the trains on the tracks but then also you know taking some of that creative uh, or those lessons from the commercial projects and then bringing those to the independent projects is there any of those yeah. lessons that we might be able to go out on <laughs> as a final uh, words of wisdom from Brian Newman of subgenre, I (laughs) would
1: say just along that same note is that as a filmmaker or any creative individual you shouldn't think of these things as selling out uh, as long as you stay true to yourself and only work with people that you trust and that you agree with what they do. So the brands I work with are all brands that I think are doing good things and that are you know, I won't work with ExxonMobil or someone destroying the environment. I'm only working with brands that I think are doing good things. But I also look at it as a way to think of your creativity differently because you may be working on an advertisement or a brand content piece, but you're able to use a new camera you never used before. Or you meet a crew member and you develop a good rapport and that's someone you want to hire on your next film or you learn something about the distribution and marketing side of things that helps you distribute your film, I think it all helps in the long run And diversifying what you do is good for your creativity and good for your bottom line.
0: I'd like to thank Brian Newman for taking the time to share all of his knowledge. the front lines of filmmaking starting early as an intern at the atlanta film festival and forming a career out of it to help filmmakers and storytellers and value motivated companies that make films to help these films reach audiences so that these films can have a ripple effect through society meaning that the film is made to do more than entertain but it's also meant to hopefully shape and craft individuals' minds so that they can help make decisions that help elevate society and culture to another level. The music for this episode comes from my new feature documentary, American Hemp, and it was created by Michael Deller of The Budos Band and Charles Bradley and his Extraordinaires. Michael and I have been working together for the last three, four, or possibly five films. Thank you, Mike, for all your creativity. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend.